You're listening to Sermon Audio from Jerusalem Church, an independent Reformed church in Mannheim, Pennsylvania. Our expository preaching ministry is devoted to proclaiming the law and the gospel for the glory of God and the salvation, growth, and comfort of Christ's church. If you'd like to know more about our church, visit us online at JerusalemChurch.net. Here's a message that we hope strengthens your faith and comforts your soul. There are good things to run to. Children hear the music of the ice cream truck and they run to grab a bomb pop or a choco taco. It's Christmas morning and children run down the stairs to open up the gifts under the Christmas tree. A soldier returns from deployment and his family runs to hug and kiss him. Why run? Because there's something really good ahead. There are also really bad things to run from. The building's on fire and we run out of it to escape the flames. A bear quickly approaches you and your friend. Run, because as long as you're faster than your friend, right? I asked Andrew uh, what we should run from. And after saying sin, he said, child catchers. (laughs) He's right. Have you ever seen Chitty Chitty Bang Bang? Oh my goodness, here we are, children. Come and get your lollipops. That guy is terrifying. Children run from a guy like that. In fact, why don't we all run from guys like that? Terrifying. Okay, why run? Because really bad things happen when you stay around. In 1 Corinthians 10, 14, the Apostle Paul gives us something bad to run from. He said, flee from idolatry. Idolatry is bad. In fact, it's soul-destroying. The world bows before the gods of self-importance and money and science and illicit sexual pleasure and power and fame and all sorts of worldly passions. To give ourselves to these things would be to participate with the evil forces acting behind these things. We must flee idolatry to live But as we run from idolatry, we must run to Christ as he gives himself to us through means of grace in a local church. Our life depends on God's means of grace. And so the word and sacraments are life for us because through them we receive Christ and we receive the benefits of redemption. 1 Corinthians 10 is primarily, is not primarily, about the Lord's Supper. It's primarily a warning about soul-destroying idolatry. But Paul talks about the Lord's Supper. He contrasts it with the idolatry of pagan sacrifices and worship. And in doing so, he says a lot about the nature and significance of the Lord's Supper. Paul assured this local church that they participate in the body and blood of Christ in the supper. The point I want to draw from 1 Corinthians 10 is this, to worthily participate in the Lord's Supper is to experience fellowship with Christ and his church and to receive the benefits of his soul-sustaining grace. We truly fellowship with Christ and one another in the supper. So let's try to understand Paul's line of thought so that we can better understand the nature and significance 
of the Lord's Supper and better understand Jesus in Matthew 26. And we should start by remembering Paul's audience. The Lord's Supper is for members of the body of Christ expressed in local churches. Now, most of Paul's letters were written to local churches in cities, Rome, Galatia, Ephesus, Philippi, and so forth. And in those cities were Christians, and those Christians were committed to Christ and one another. They were official members of the local church in their city. Corinth was no, no exception. Paul began, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Now, the members of this local church were Jews and Gentiles, and that's significant, Jews and Gentiles, and they were struggling with various problems, division, Disorderly worship, idolatry, theological confusion, lack of discernment, and other problems. One other big one was how the members of the church observed the Lord's Supper. So Paul wrote uh, a letter to this city church to address, in part, problems with the Lord's Supper. When Paul said they were sanctified in Christ Jesus, when he called them saints, it assumes that the church could distinguish between those in the Corinthian church and those outside of it. This point is strengthened later in chapter 5. Paul discussed formal church discipline, which relates very closely to the Lord's Supper. And Paul said, let him who has done this be removed from among you. And Paul mentioned not eating with an unrepentant member which likely includes the Lord's Supper. Paul even said, purge the evil person from among you. Now, when was the last time that someone got fired from a company that they weren't employed by? For it to make sense to remove or to purge a person from a local church of, of Corinth, there must be first standards for membership and standards for shepherding oversight. And second, there must be an official way to distinguish between those inside and those outside the church. And that's what Paul affirmed when he used the terms inside the church and outsiders. And this is similar to Paul's other letters to other local churches that you can read in the New Testament. So when, when Paul discussed the Lord's Supper then in chapters 10 and 11, he was speaking to the members of the visible church in the city of Corinth. He addressed their unity in Christ and their mutual responsibility to love one another when they assembled as the body of Christ locally expressed for worship and the supper. Friends, be careful that American individualism and the spirit of insubordination doesn't corrupt your view of the church and the Lord's Supper. The, the Lord's Supper is for members of the body of Christ expressed locally in local churches. Yes, there absolutely is a universal church to which all believers belong. But all that the Bible says about how to act uh, with fellow Christians and fellow believers and, and all that the Bible says about how the church is run 
is enacted and played out in the organized local church. And as we get into chapter 10, uh, we can't lose sight of Paul's audience, members of the local church of Corinth. Okay, we need to be honest about something. Christians struggle with idolatry. Idolatry is not simply the sin of the Hindus and, and the Buddhists. Local churches must be aware, must beware rather, I'm sorry, beware of the soul-destroying dangers of idolatry. In chapter 10, Paul warned the Corinthian church of idolatry. And how he warned them is intriguing. Look at verses 1 through 14. Paul talked about Israel and the Exodus. And notice in verse 1 that Paul said, Our fathers, referring to Israel, the new covenant church composed of Jews and Gentiles from the first century until today is a continuation of the church under the old covenant, one church throughout history. Paul recounted the church's experience during the Exodus. All were under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and sea. All ate the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink. Included in that were men, women, children, and even infants. 1 Corinthians 10 is explicit proof of covenant infant baptism. All were baptized into Moses, the mediator and a type of Christ. All of God's covenant people were delivered and blessed by their connection to Christ's church. And it was Christ delivering them and Christ providing for them. Right? And it was Christ uh, there. Paul, Paul said, and the rock, what does he say? Was Christ. That's typological language. The rock graciously gushed refreshment for all of God's covenant people, and that's what Christ is, a never-ending fountain of soul refreshment. Christ sustained his church even under the old covenant. But notice that not all ethnic Israel was true Israel. Some covenant members didn't believe God's covenant promises. Among the wheat were weeds. Paul said, verse 5, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Just because someone is baptized into the visible church and belongs doesn't mean they have true faith and that they're truly united to Christ. The, the visible church has always included true believers and hypocrites. One must have true faith to receive all the benefits of Christ. And Paul reminded the Corinthians of the sins of Israel. Glance at verses 7 through 10. The old covenant church desired evil. They were idolaters. Remember the golden calf. They indulged in sexual immorality. They tested Christ. They grumbled against God. And Paul took the Corinthians back to the Old Testament, to Old Testament texts to review the unfaithfulness of the Old Covenant church and to show how God judged them. He's making a, a really startling point. God killed thousands in the visible church because of their idolatry and sin. 
Now, why was Paul bringing up unfaithful Israel in a letter to members of the organized, visible, and local church in Corinth? Because the church in Corinth was struggling with the same sins. He wanted to warn them about the soul-destroying effects of idolatry and sin. Listen to what Paul said, verses 6 and 11. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. You see, the, the new covenant church was supposed to look back to the old covenant church and learn from their bad example. Paul warned against the same sins by highlighting God's judgment upon Israel because God judges hypocrites inside the church, inside the visible church who disobey him. Repentance and faith must be. And notice that Paul told them that the end of the ages had come upon them. Now that's interesting. You see, they were living in the last days. We too are living in the last days, and we we covered this back in Matthew, right? There, There are professing Christians who very confusedly think that we should detach our Christian faith from the Old Testament. Peculiar, uh, texts like this tell us the complete opposite. Paul added in verses 12 and 14, therefore, meaning consider all of the bad stuff about the old covenant church. Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. In other words, don't be prideful. Know the dangers of idolatry and sin for the church. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, can you hear in there Paul's love for the church? My beloved. That's rich. He gave them gospel. He said, God is faithful. God will provide a way for the escape of sin, for you to escape. God will help you endure temptation. That's gospel. But see, Paul also warned them and he gave them something to do. Take heed, flee idolatry. And their hope and their strength to do it was God's faithfulness and provision of grace. Now, we're a local church like Corinth. We're members of Christ and we're members of one another. We too must beware of the soul-destroying dangers of idolatry and sin. Idolatry relates directly to the Lord's Supper, as we're going to see. With idolatry in mind, Paul brought up the Lord's Supper to contrast it with idolatrous paganism. And his contrast actually serves to help us Understand the nature and the significance of the Lord's Supper. So then, local churches cannot participate in the fellowship of the Lord and the fellowship of demons. Idolatry is worshiping or serving idols or false gods. The gods of paganism were imaged by physical idols, physical images, 
and pagans sacrificed animals to their gods in their temples, and they feasted on the sacrifice. Paul considered this to be participating with demons. And Paul gave the church a very sensible warning. Some were participating in the, uh, with demons in pagan worship, while at the same time participating with Christ in the Lord's Supper. That's really bad. Look at verses 18 through 22. They're key verses to Paul's argument. And the contrast between the table of demons and the table of the Lord helps us better understand the nature and significance of the Lord's Supper. In verse 18, Paul mentioned Israel again, namely the old covenant sacrificial system. When Israel worshiped and offered sacrifices on the altar and ate those sacrifices, they were actually participants in the altar of God. Uh, The Greek word is koinonos, meaning sharers of the altar or companions of the altar. It seems then as if Paul meant that by eating the sacrifice, those consuming it were identifying with Yahweh, were worshiping Yahweh, were expecting benefits and blessings from Yahweh. So when Israel offered animal sacrifices for the atonement of their sins, as they all ate afterwards, they were counted as those who had offered the sacrifices and counted among those who would receive the benefits of the sacrifices offered on the altar. Participants, right? They were companions of the altar or companions of Christ who was typified in the altar. Didn't the altar signify and seal God's presence with Israel and God's grace toward Israel? Now, Paul wasn't legitimizing idols or pagan feasts. He's very careful to to note that. He wasn't arguing that, that idols are significant, that they're powerful, that they're divine, and that these feasts were really anything. There is only one God who blesses and benefits. However, behind the idols... Behind pagan worship were demons. And pagan sacrifices and feasts were actually companionship with those demons. Verse 20. No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Do you understand what he meant? To eat, to drink, with pagans in their ceremonial feasts was idolatry, was to actively participate with or to join oneself to demons. And that's contrasted and contrary to communing with Christ in the Lord's Supper. Paul said, verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Folks, Christ does not share his allegiance. No, no, only to him. Now, does that imply anything about the Lord's Supper? Sure does. The Supper is not simply an empty memorial. It's participation. It's sharing. It's joining. As the pagans commune with demons in their feast, Christians commune with Christ in theirs. 
Christ possesses absolute supremacy in all things, and he has grace to give his people at his table. He doesn't want them sitting at another table to celebrate with evil spirits. Christ is enough, and he nourishes and he strengthens the souls of his people at his table. All other religious tables are poison. And in verse 22, Paul called out their arrogance and self-reliance as a church. He warned them again, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? That's a sharp rebuke. This church was struggling. And folks, we have our idolatry too. Can we see it? You see, I think looking back to Israel would help us to see our own idolatry. I think looking back to the church in Corinth would actually help us understand our own, see our own idolatry. Sometimes we can't see our own idolatry too well. The sacraments are significant in various ways. They communicate to those in the visible church the benefits of Christ's mediation. They strengthen the faith and assure the souls of believers. They rally the visible church to obedience to Christ. They encourage church unity and church harmony, but they do something else that's very significant. The sacraments distinguish those inside the covenant of grace or church from those outside the covenant of grace or church. The the table of the Lord draws lines. The, The supper is not open to those outside the covenant of grace or outside the visible church where Christ, in in which Christ truly communes with his people. The Lord's table is for the visible church alone. Those who do not want to to separate themselves from the world and to join themselves to Christ and to join themselves to his visible church are not worthy of the table. Why? Because at the table there is true communion with Christ and one another. True fellowship, a, a true sharing of the body and blood of Christ together as a visible church. And that will become clear next week in chapter 11. But there's more here. The bread and wine in the Lord's Supper are consecrated for a blessed and sacred use. In verse 16, Paul mentioned the church blessing the cup of blessing. Blessing the cup of blessing. To bless the cup is to be thankful. I think that's true, but it's also to consecrate the cup, to sanctify it, to set it aside for a sacred purpose. A sacred use in the supper. I think to bless the cup is to also ask God's blessing and benefit through the cup and through communion with Christ. Paul seems to suggest here an expectation of receiving something, of receiving grace in the cup. It's a meal through which Christ feeds and nourishes and strengthens and refreshes our soul. It's God's blessings coming in the cup. Calvin said this, quote, to bless the cup then is to set it apart for this purpose, that it may be to us an emblem of the blood of Christ. The design of the mystical blessing in the supper is that the wine may be no longer a common beverage, but set apart for the spiritual nourishment of the soul while it is an emblem of the blood of Christ, end quote. 
in the supper. Common bread and wine are set apart. And by them, Christ signifies and seals to us the benefits of the gospel. And so the Lord's Supper is a supernatural means through which Christ nourishes and strengthens the souls of the members of his body. So they took common red, black, and white cloth. They cut it, they sewed it, and they made a garment. It was the person who put on the red, black, and white garment and who performed in it who made that garment special. Michael Jordan's red Chicago Bulls jersey that he wore during game one of the 98 NBA Finals where he dropped 33 points, the one that they call the last dance jersey sold for $10.1 million. Jordan gave that common cloth its value. Bread and wine are nothing special until the Lord consecrates them at his table to give us grace through them. They do not magically become our Lord. They do not possess any inherent power in themselves, but they are sacred because of how the sacred one uses them. Christ uses simple bread and wine to bless you, to bless your soul. Paul said, because there is one bread, one loaf, one source, one common source of blessing. We who are many are one body. We are one in Christ. We are many individuals who Christ assembles and who Christ unites to form his one body. And he is our head. And together, as we are knit together by Christ, we are truly members of Christ and members of one another. We are one with our Lord and we are one with one another. And in the supper, we experience and enjoy this mystical and unexplainable oneness. We share his spirit. We share his benefits. How? I don't know. I don't know. But I know that he shares himself with us at the table. Can't we gather that much from what Paul writes here in concert with what Jesus said in Matthew 26? Dear church, something supernatural happens as we commune with Christ at his table. We are participants with him. We are participants with one another. We eat and drink to become more and more united to Christ and one another. This is for the visible church. Paul got it right in Ephesians 4, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. We are one at the table. And so it's very important who comes to the table, who comes to the Lord's table. But we can go further. Partaking of the Lord's Supper by faith is to share in the body and blood of Christ. Paul called it the cup of blessing. That's significant. We really need to think about that, folks. The cup of blessing. That word blessing is used in the Bible to refer to the blessing of Abraham, which is the Holy Spirit. It is used of the spiritual blessings that God gives us in Christ. 
It is used of land, drinking in water, and drinking in rain, and producing a useful crop, and receiving a blessing from God. It's even used to refer to obtaining a blessing. For Paul to call it the cup of blessing implies that Christ gives a blessing to us when we drink it. Is that not a fair assumption? And Paul did call it a participation. We could even say a sharing in the blood and body of Christ. The blessing that we receive is the benefits of his body and blood. The Greek word for participation might sound familiar to you. You've probably heard the word before, koinonia. Koinonia. Koinonia refers to this close mutual association, to a fellowship, to a sharing in something. Koinonia is used earlier in 1 Corinthians 1.9 to describe the church being called into the fellowship of God's Son, Jesus Christ. In 1 John 1.3, Koinonia describes fellowship among believers and fellowship with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Paul used koinonia to describe fellowship in the supper. And I think Paul's meaning is more than Not less than, but more than the fellowship of believers at the table. Paul talks about koinonia with the body and blood of Christ. I believe Paul means to say that we receive a spiritual benefit by participating in the blood and body of Christ. Remember, it's the cup of blessing. And remember Paul's contrast of participating with, uh, in the, the body and blood of Christ with participating with demons at the table of demons. In the Lord's Supper, we fellowship with the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ. And he confers a blessing of grace to us through faith. Another way to say verse 16 is, is it not a sharing of the blood of Christ? Is it not a sharing of the body of Christ? Take, eat, this is my body. Drink of it, all of you. This is my blood. It's communing with Christ to eat and drink his supper. Just as it's communing with demons to eat and drink demonic suppers. There's a real fellowship, there's a real association, there's a real companionship with Christ in the Lord's Supper, and this is for what? For your assurance, for your strength, for your comfort, for your salvation, for your endurance in the, in the Christian life. You need this communion. So the question is, is Christ sharing something real with you and me in the Lord's Supper? And friends, on what basis would anyone say no? It's koinonia with Christ in the supper. He's sharing with us, and we get to partake of his body, his blood, and his spirit. Dear church, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. It's beyond our comprehension it's that wonderful. We are truly Christ's companions at his table. The king of glory invites his church to commune and participate with him at his table. Wow, that's amazing. He has seated us, us, with him at his table. 
We come to receive grace, and we come to receive grace from our best friend who is happy to bless us more and more and more. This this relates directly to Matthew 26. One scholar calls the bread and wine vehicles of the presence of Christ. Vehicles of the presence of Christ. Young men, all right? Young, unmarried men. What if your wife gave you one of these on your wedding day, right? Uh, A ring. That's worth something, but she didn't give you herself. Would you be okay with that? Is that what you want out of marriage? The sign and seal without the person is not that good. You can remember your wife and you can remember her pledge to you, young guys, of what the the ring stands for. But if you don't enjoy the presence of your wife, what good is the ring? You want your wife and you want her to give herself to you so that you can be one with her. We should want the supper because we want Christ to give us himself to be together with him as one. That's what we long for in the supper. Folks, I I have been on a journey, a wild one in my life, but I have learned a lot about the Lord's Supper and Christ's grace for me in the past few months. My views have deepened. Uh, The preciousness of the supper has deepened for me and as has the supper's seriousness and the supper's weightiness, especially considering that I am a minister of the gospel who administers this sacred holy meal here at this church. That is a weight. That is a responsibility And I find in myself, and maybe you find in yourself too as well, that I expect far too little from God's means of grace. I expect too little of the Holy Spirit working through the preaching of God's word. I expect too little. And I expect too little from the Holy Spirit working through the sacraments. I just, I undershoot it. And that's... The reason for that, I, I guess, is just my faith is weak. And that's why I need the word and the sacraments. God gives us promises and communicates those gracious promises to us through his word and sacraments. The Lord's Supper, it, beyond a shadow of a doubt, is a command. It is. We need to observe it until Christ returns. But see, it's not merely a command, and I wouldn't even put the emphasis there. I don't think that's where where Scripture puts it. Attached to the Lord's Supper are God's gracious promises. That's where the emphasis is. We see the broken bread, or the bread broken, and, and we see the cup that is given, and we have the promise that Christ was broken and given for us on the cross. We watch the minister give the elements. We taste the elements with our mouths, and we believe in the promise signified and sealed in the elements, and Christ nourishes and strengthens our souls to everlasting life with his crucified body and shed blood. I need those promises. I need need that grace. How kind of God to give us that grace to you, to me, in the sacrament. I don't think the Lord's Supper means much at all to people who don't long to commune with Christ. 
I think the people who understand the Lord's Supper best, who participate with the deepest reverence, confidence, and expectation are those weak and weary members of Christ who long to be nourished and strengthened by Christ. The desperate eat, the desperate drink in order to live. And as they do, they know their Savior lives and they know they live in their Savior. It makes absolutely no sense for someone to confess their need of Christ, to confess their faith in Christ, to confess their love for Christ, to confess their desire to follow Christ, and at the same time to neglect the word of Christ, to neglect the sacraments of Christ, to neglect the shepherding care of Christ, to neglect the accountability of Christ, and to neglect the communion of saints provided by Christ in the koinonia of the local church. Confessing love for Christ means nothing without actual love for Christ's church. Confessing union with Christ means absolutely nothing without true union with Christ's church. Confessing submission to Christ's authority means absolutely nothing without actually submitting to Christ's authority conveyed through the shepherding oversight and care of a local church. You see, the Lord's Supper is about sharing in Christ and the benefits of his redemption. And there are many, 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 many benefits. And those benefits are enjoyed by the body of Christ through the ministry and koinonia of a local church. This is the biblical truth that that Westminster Confession 25.2 expresses so clearly and so powerfully and helpfully that there is no ordinary possibility of salvation outside of the visible church, which is the kingdom of Christ, the house and family of God, and only the family are invited to the table. So I hope that this mini-series on the Lord's Supper, that, that through it, you're becoming more aware of just how Christ blesses you and desires to bless you in and through the koinonia of the supper. See, partaking of the Lord's Supper by faith is to experience true fellowship with Christ and his church and to receive the benefits of his soul-sustaining grace. Now, I read something really, I, I know long quotes are not always helpful, maybe most not, maybe most of the time not helpful, but I read something so, so good and helpful in a commentary, commentary by Roy Siampa, I don't know if that's how you say his name, and Brian Rosner, and I want to share this quote to you because I think it is so good and so enlightening. I'll break it up in two parts. I think it's pretty simple to track. Here we go. Paul's argument, with its emphasis on participation in the blood and body of Christ, seeks to stress that where God is, invoked as the host or patron of the meal, the fellowship is not merely with the men and women gathered around the table, but with the deity as well. Through our fellowship with Christ, we participate in the benefits of his sacrifice, which serves to establish or renew our covenantal relationship with God. Let me stop there. We have true fellowship with Christ at his table, and we participate in the benefits of his sacrifice on the cross. And every time that we receive the supper from Christ, the host, 
our covenantal relationship with God is renewed. Now here's the second part of the quote. The wonder of the Christian faith is that our participation in Christ is not based on a sacrifice that we make to please the God, as in the Greco-Roman and other pagan religions, but on Christ's own sacrifice of his body and blood that we might indeed participate in the life that only he can provide for us through that sacrifice. Pagan sacrifices offer only a reflection of the human longing for communion with the divine and a human attempt to establish that communion. That's paganism. Christ's sacrifice of his body and blood for us establishes what we could never achieve otherwise, true communion with God and participation in the life he has won for us through the cross. Do you understand why that's significant? The Lord's Supper is not something we do for God. It's all about Christ giving to us so that we may participate in his life. This is very precious, by the way. This is a distinctive of Reformed theology that nails the scriptures. There's no other good way to understand this, in my knowledge. It's all about Christ giving and lavishing his blessings and his life upon his people, his visible church, that gather at his table. All the religions of the world are man's attempt to commune with God, something that we have to do on our terms to make sure that we did enough, that God would be pleased for us. That's completely not Christianity. Let's not make the sacraments that. Let's make the sacraments about Christ, God's grace given to his church, his people, on his terms. He gives grace on his terms. He's the one giving grace. He's the one bringing you and me into precious communion with him as we seat with him at his table. All the man-centered religions of the world are different than that. And none of them will provide you the comfort and the hope of that. The gospel, friends, to participate in the Lord's Supper is to, by faith alone, experience true fellowship with Christ and his church and to truly receive the benefits of his soul-sustaining grace. There are bad things to run from. Run from idolatry and sin. There are good things to run to. Run to the Lord's table to commune with your Lord, with your brothers and sisters in Christ in the visible church.